everybody. I'm Pastor Robin, and you're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by reaching and enabling people of all ages and nations to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Let's prepare our hearts for what we're about to hear. Momentum is about movement. It's taking a step into godly purpose, investing ourselves into the kingdom, taking the momentary to eternity. It's something to be gained. It's a turning motion to shift, but always shifting forward. It's transforming. Our story is unfolding into a new yet familiar adventure. It's like holding a memento while recognizing the hand of the artist in all the new things in unlikely places. Saying what God's done before will happen again, but it won't look like what we're used to. It's a surprising plan only God could create. It feels like revival. It feels like anticipation. And it looks like His invitation. And we accept. So let us hang on with holy expectation and know that God is calling us to greater things. We just have to say yes. Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning and welcome back to the book of Acts. Now, maybe you're joining us for the first time. You might be joining us again online. You might be part of our online site. You might be at a physical location. Uh, You might be a long-term Christian. You might have just become a Christian. Maybe even at the Alpha Weekend that happened the last few weeks, you might be a seeker or a skeptic. You might belong to another faith. You might be spiritual, but you don't think you're religious. Uh, You might be agnostic, atheist. You can fill in the blank. Okay, no matter who you are, no matter where you're coming from, Uh, Today's passage is really important and really shows the radical nature and the joy and the offense of the Christian faith. So no matter how you're looking into this, I'm going to beg your attention uh, as we get into this because this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we, even we who are Christians, actually begin to see, do I actually, actually, actually believe what this is all about. Okay, last week, we were in a really wild moment. And we asked this question, and if you weren't here last week, you might or might not understand this, but I asked this question, what in the world could make an Orthodox Greek-speaking Jew actually love, be close to, and have relationship with an Ethiopian COO who was a eunuch and also worked for a pagan system even though he was trying to find God? And what's been wild is we've been going through the book of Acts. And by the way, if you don't know what the book of Acts is, it's actually a book written, it's in the New Testament, that talks about the first 30 years of the church right after the ascension of Jesus. And we're asking this question, what could overcome suspicion and cultural differences and worldviews and different religions and race and misapplied theology? And the answer has been time and time again, Jesus. Within eight chapters... uh, Hebraic Jews, Greek Jews, Samaritans, which Jews, by the way, hated and detested, and now an Ethiopian, have been included in God's family through the work of Jesus. I mean, again, sitting here in 2023, we really missed the scandal of this, but this is just like mind-bending. So you've got this incredible inclusion taking place from God's perspective, not a Western perspective, and we just need to admit, of course, this has always been the agenda of God. Now... God moves his focus once again. 
And just like an epic movie where there's all this stuff going on, it focuses on one individual. And God starts looking towards a person that most of us actually would not want to talk to, hang around with. And especially if you're a Christian and you're having a really honest moment, most of us would think in our heart of hearts, God should not care for this person. God should not look towards this person. God should not love this person. God should not forgive this person. And this person, he's never going to become a follower of Jesus. And yet God keeps overcoming barrier after barrier, crossing more and more lines that have not yet been crossed. And now remember this, especially if you belong to Sanctus, God is taking us as a church through this section of Acts because he's showing us not only how to reach out, he's telling probably us what he's doing among us and actually what he's about to start doing. So this next move is more radical than a Jewish person hanging out with a religious blood enemy called the Samaritans. This is way more transformative even than last week. God's now going to show us in the world that no person is off limit to his love. Jesus really did die for the sins of the whole world, not just the people we like. And now enemies and those who are involved in trauma-giving persecution and abuse are going to become family. Okay, let's not forget how our movement began. Our movement started when Jesus was executed in the middle of injustice. Our movement was birthed out of religiously informed, personally informed, politically motivated hate and murder. And yet, if there's one person's story that brings all of this home, it's this guy named Saul of Tarsus. Now, if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Acts 9. You can turn there if you've got a paper one, or if it's on your phone or some device, you can just navigate there. But our, our story actually doesn't begin in chapter 9. It starts in chapter 7, the first dark night of the soul for the church. And we were there a little while ago. This is when the very first person is murdered just for being a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, remember, his name is Stephen. Stephen's sitting in front of a group called the Sanhedrin. Let me do this real quick. The Sanhedrin was the most important institution for the Jews 2,000 years ago. It's a version of like our parliament, if you're American, your Congress and Senate, and the Supreme Court, and a Jewish version of the Vatican rolled up into one. Best scholars, best lawyers, best theologians, heads of families, they gather. And this guy, Stephen, who I remind you, is Jewish, says in Acts 7.56, Look, in the middle of this place, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They rushed him. They dragged him out of the city, Jerusalem. They began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man whose name was Saul. And while they were stoning Stephen, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, then fell on his knees, cried out, Lord, don't hold their sin against them, and then he dies. So there's this young guy named Saul who's holding the coats of this very large angry religious mob that's murdering Stephen. And they're stoning him to death. And again, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but just think about how terrible it would be to die like that with a group of religious people surrounding you with huge stones and basically killing you slowly. And amazingly and interestingly, Stephen, while he is dying a torturous death, as life is literally leaving his body, he doesn't pray a prayer for revenge. He doesn't curse people or, or as he's dying, ask God to send them to hell. 
He prays this prayer of mercy and compassion. He utters from a deformed, broken, bleeding mouth, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Well, Saul's there watching this take place. He's holding the coats and he's approving of what's happening because he actually thinks this is God's will. This is God's work. Well, now we get to chapter 9. Uh, Stephen's prayer is answered. Jesus does not hold Saul's sin against him. So it's like God seizes time itself. God breaks through and changes the course of history, forgiving and moving and touching and changing his enemy, the murderer of one of his kids. And he's about to be called, not Saul anymore, but Paul, but that's later. So Acts chapter 9 reads like this. Okay, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against Jesus' disciples. Now, this uh, anger expressed here is an actual Old Testament image. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. When a horse or animal, especially a horse, is rampaging, is wild, is snorting, and sort of violent and out of control and dangerous, that's what Saul's like. Now, this is what happens. Uh, Saul went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So if he found anyone who belonged there to the way, whether men or women he might take them prisoners to Jerusalem. So Saul is not done. No, no, no. Saul now takes initiative. Saul doesn't just make empty threats. He's going to do what he needs to do. His simple goal is to pursue, to root out, and destroy this growing aberration of the Jewish faith, Judaism, which taught that Jesus from Nazareth is the fulfillment of the Jewish faith, is the Messiah. He did come back from the dead. He's like, this is totally a lie. I have to protect the true faith. And so I'm going to deal with this before this changes and deceives too many. He's not satisfied with Stephen's murder or the running after others. He wants to do more for God and more with faith. So he goes to the only person that has authority. That's the high priest. Now, in 6 AD, the Roman government gave the Sanhedrin and the high priest extradition ability over every Jew in the Roman Empire. So in other words, the Jewish community governed itself. And the high priest at this time, who has authority over every Jew from Spain all the way, like everyone, the high priest at this time, his name is Caiaphas. Now Caiaphas is the one who ordered the killing of Jesus in the Sanhedrin. So Saul goes to him and says, I want to go to Damascus to find out if there's any Christians there. If there are, I want to bring them back and make them prisoners. So whether through injury, intimidation, kidnapping, killing, Saul's going to get the job done. Interesting. Do you see what he calls the church? Doesn't call us Christians. Doesn't call us disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. He calls us the way. This is the first name of our movement, even before Christian. And it's what our spiritual great-grandparents used to remind them that they had met Jesus. And Jesus claimed, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one can get to God except through me. Peter repeated this incredible claim that is beautiful and life-giving or offensive, depending on how you want to hear it right? In a pluralistic, spiritually dark, confused world. Peter said this in Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to all humans by which we must be saved. He's the way. We're the followers of the way. Back to the story, back to fear, back to being hunted, back to pride, back to religious blindness, back to Saul. Verse 3. So as Saul neared Damascus, 
suddenly. <laughs> suddenly. A light from heaven flashed around him. Okay, so Paul is on a 242-kilometer journey, and then this takes place. This event, other than the death and resurrection of Jesus, is one of the most impactful things that has happened in all of human history. Secular scholars will agree with this. Now, the Bible says, Holy Scripture says, that a light, a light from heaven flashed around Saul. Now, we know from other accounts in the book of Acts, this takes place around noon. So this light is so wildly strong, it's outshining the sun at noonday in desert-like conditions. And it's flashing like lightning. It's unnatural, it's powerful, it's blinding, and this great undoing begins. Now, I'm going to pause and do this for the 400th time. <laughs> He's seeing the glory of God. So... The glory of God is referenced between 275 and 350 times in the Bible. The glory of God means the splendor of God, the beauty of God, the magnificence of God, the radiance of God, the rapture of God. The phrase is the Shekinah glory, the manifest physical revelation of God's purity, beauty, holiness. This presence is overwhelming every time. When the Jewish people left Egypt and they were walking in the wilderness, it says that this presence was in front of them in the form of a pillar of cloud by day, filled with lightning, by the way, and at night with fire. When Moses goes and gets the Ten Commandments, he goes up on this mountain, and the whole mountain is covered in darkness with light inside, with fire and lightning, terrifying, same presence. When Moses dedicates the tabernacle, the tent where God is met, that presence basically lightens into that presence, into that uh, tent. Solomon later builds this magnificent temple. That same presence enters into the temple and all the people see it and watch it. This is the same fire that came down during the time of Elijah the prophet that consumed the altar when he's facing off with the Baal worshippers. This is the same overwhelming wild presence that Isaiah and Ezekiel both experience when God calls them to be prophets. And when they see God's just presence, they fall over. They're overwhelmed. This is the same glory that shone around the shepherds at Christmas that freaked them out. This is the same glory that Peter, James, and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration when they see Jesus with Moses and Elijah hanging out, and they see and they are totally overwhelmed. And this is the same presence Stephen saw just before he's murdered, when he looked up into heaven. And who's standing in the middle of the glory, the radiance, the rapture, the magnificence of, it's Jesus from Nazareth. And this is scandal, scandal, scandal. Jesus, the carpenter's son from Nazareth, a nobody from nowhere, whose birth is a little suspicious, by the way, is now at the right hand of God. And we know that the right hand of God means in the Bible, all power and authority. When a king in ancient times extended his right hand, it meant life, death, blessing, war, ultimate decision. So Stephen, just before he's murdered, in the middle of San, in the Sanhedrin says, Jesus, who had been executed by that very government group, is now physically alive, is at the Father's right hand, and has supremacy over the whole universe. So here's what you got to catch as we get going today. This is the beauty, the truth, and the magnificence of Jesus. Jesus is not just a teacher of note. Jesus, I know the Muslims don't agree, but they're wrong on this. Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is not just one religious teacher of many. 
Jesus is more than some person who shaped part of history or a moral revolutionary. Jesus is at the center of God's glory, which means he's equal with God because he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So now this same glory shows up around Saul. And what's the result of the epic encounter? Verse 4, Saul fell to the ground, like everyone does when God shows up, and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Not just a light, not just presence, but from the presence and light, a voice. Now, the one who's standing in the light speaks Aramaic, not Hebrew or Greek, speaks the language of Jesus. And he calls Saul by name. Now, this phenomenon, by the way, 2,000 years ago, rabbis talked about it, and it was called the heavenly echo, and Saul is now experiencing this. So, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Confused, dazed, scared, out of control, this enemy of heaven who thought he himself was actually heaven's messenger, thought he was heaven's ally, musters up the ability to speak. It's, I guarantee it's not from courage. It's probably from adrenaline. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. Heart pounding, I guarantee he peed his pants. I mean, I guarantee he soiled, waiting and wondering if this would be the end of his existence. I mean, you think about this in this moment, all ambitions, all dreams, all his education, all his connections, all his political and religious authority, all human favor, all human friendships, nothing, nothing. It's like when you face death, you can have everyone around you, you still die by yourself. So he waits for the answer. I bet you it felt like hours. It was probably only seconds. And then to his great shock and horror, the heavenly voice, the one he knew was God, said, I am Jesus whom you have been persecuting or you are persecuting. The epiphany would have quickly sunk in. Can you imagine what Saul is thinking? I mean, Saul has got like two PhDs basically equivalent in Jewish theology. He, he knows his stuff. He knows what this light is. He, he knows what's happening, but that Jesus is in the middle of it and that Jesus is alive and Jesus is in the middle of God's presence and everything I thought and everything I believed is off and I've missed something, I'm undone, I'm wrong, I'm overcome. I, I guarantee he thinks I'm going to die, I'm going to go to hell for this. There is no way out. I'm undone. It was the church father Origen that once said, everyone who betrays the disciples of Jesus is reckoned as betraying, betraying Jesus himself. Now notice, lean in, listen close. Jesus is not saying, why are you attacking my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? You, Saul, have been hounding me. You, Saul, have been pursuing me. You, Saul, have harassed me. You, Saul, have been hunting me. You shall have been bullying me. You shall have been discriminating against me. You shall have personally attacked me. And now I am coming for you. Jesus has been suffering because he's actually connected to every single Christian. That's why Paul later would say in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, we actually are the body of Christ. Hold on to that. That's going to matter by the end of this message. Now, I'm sure to Saul's surprise, and probably many of us, the God that he attacked, the living God, the only true living God, the holy God, the loving God, the God who has no shadow in him, does not kill him, but actually commissions him to do something redemptive and merciful and forgiving that will not only be for him, but actually will change the life of billions of us. 
Jesus says, get up and go to the, into the city. That's Damascus. And you'll be told what you need to do. Not suggestion, divine command. It assumes this is going to happen. And this life-altering moment is taking place. And by the way, this encounter, you, this is a conversion. But don't misread this. This is conversion not to another religion. Christianity is not a separate religion from Judaism. It's the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. It's always what was supposed to happen. His conversion is to full Judaism. This is a conversion of will and intellect and emotion. He now understands it all. Now, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound. They didn't see anyone. So Saul got up from the ground. When he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, like being near an explosion. Uh, the divine experience not only affects Paul, it affects all around, though they don't fully understand. And when Saul gets up from the ground, the presence of God had been so forceful, it physically knocked him over. And when the presence of God subsided, uh, he tries rising. Now, this is interesting. If you've ever been exposed to a bright flash of light, we all try closing our eyes or shielding our eyes. Uh, when he opens his eyes, he can't see anymore. And what's so amazing about this is God physically demonstrates what his spiritual condition actually is. Oh yeah, you're smart and educated and you've had, traveled around the world and you grew up in a very multicultural, uh, pluralistic, wealthy city and you've got to a PhD, yeah, but you're blind, you're misguided, you're theologically informed, but you're wrong, you're helpless, you need direction. His friends who are going to help Saul do the dirty work in Damascus by arresting Christians now have to lead him by the hand. The strong, the powerful, the religiously informed, the intimidator, the persecutor, humble, confused, blind. The strong visionary now has to go to a place blind where he intended to do great damage. It says for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. He fasts for three days. Yes, he's overcoming the physical shock of the encounter. There's no doubt about that at all. But actually what's really happening, the enormity of his sin grew more and more clear to this sightless man. And as his world is unraveling, I know, I can guarantee you, the words of his mentor would have been ringing through his mind day and night. See, Paul studied under one of the two top Jewish scholars in his day and still regarded even today as one of the greatest Jewish thinkers that's ever lived. His name is Gamaliel, and he was part of the Sanhedrin. And when Peter and John had been arrested, I think the second time, for talking about Jesus, it says this at Acts 5, 38. Gamaliel says, therefore, in this present case, I advise all of you, leave these two men alone. Let them go. If their purpose or activity is of human origin, it's going to fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Well, the story shifts, and now a new character comes on the scene, who by, of course, God's design and will, will help sort of facilitate this next move. Now, we know that the gospel's already made its way to Damascus, whether by fleeing people from the persecution or other means, and we now meet this new person. Verse 10, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. This is different, Ananias, than the other one we talked about. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord said, I need you to go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus. His name is Saul. He has been praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Now, 
this is when I researched this years ago. This is really this is great. So Straight Street was not only famous in Damascus; it was actually a very famous street in the ancient world. It had great porches and actually had two gates on each side. This was the best fashion street in the world. So for we who live in Toronto, this is like Yorkville or Yorkdale, London Regent Street, uh, Fifth Avenue in New York, the Million Dollar Mile in Chicago. This is Rodeo Drive in LA. So in the, I just, this is so great. God's next move happens in another very unexpected place for many Christians. Heaven is poured out in the middle of Louis Vuitton and Gucci and Cartier. And one of his followers is working and living there. Now, most of us, when we think that uh, Jesus, if he ever appeared in a vision, we would be, that'd be so incredible and life's changing. I'd so obey him. Probably not. Look what Ananias says. He says, Lord, I've heard many reports about uh, this man Saul and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. Ananias knows the story. Ananias carefully but honestly argues with Jesus. Uh, don't you know who this is? Um, oh, he hates you and he hates us and he's coming to do damage to me, by the way, and he's killed Stephen and he's so dangerous and he continues to remind the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He has come here with the authority of the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Don't you find it interesting that those who are closest to God feel comfortable to struggle with him? Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Job, David, Jeremiah. God always desires authenticity. So Ananias says to the risen Jesus, God in flesh, you're crazy. This man's our enemy. He's coming here to hurt me. I want to remind you that he's coming for me, right? And Jesus, full of sovereignty, gently but also strongly says, go. (laughs) This is not a conversation. Go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before non-Jews and their kings and before the people of Israel. No more conversation. This is my will. Saul is called. He's my chosen instrument. He's my chosen vessel. I'm the author. You're not the author. I'm the author. Saul's not the author. I'm going to do what I want, what I want by my power, because my ways are perfect. He's my chosen instrument, and the fact that he hates me and assaulted me or hates you is mute, because guess what, Ananias? I've decided to forgive him like I've forgiven you. So he's going to carry my name and he's going to be a representative, my ambassador, my liaison to non-Jewish people and their politicians and kings and even other Jews. Saul to Paul, enemy to friend, the one that will fulfill God's heart. Now this is wild. If you want to make the Christmas connection because we're entering into the season, Jesus had promised and commanded the church to go into all the world. But this was all started around the Christmas event when Jesus was eight days old. When Jesus was taken as that newborn baby by Mary and Joseph to the temple, there was a priest named Simeon. And Simeon had been told by God that he would not die before he saw the Messiah. And so Mary and Joseph walk in and Simeon walks right up to a child, one of thousands of children. The Spirit of God says him. And then in Luke 2, 29, Simeon takes Jesus and says, Sovereign Lord, as you've promised, you now can dismiss your servant in peace. I can die. For my eyes have seen your salvation, this little baby, which you've prepared in the sight of all people, a light of revelation for non-Jews and the glory of your people Israel. And this light is going to be carried by Saul. Well, it's going to be costly. Verse 16, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, 
the Lord, that's Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so you may see and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. He got up. He was baptized. He took some food. He regained his strength. From that moment forward, nothing was the same. He took some time to reflect, a few years, but at the end of the day, he plants churches across the whole Roman Empire, writes two-thirds of the New Testament, 13 books. He spreads the good news of Jesus to the Jewish community. And in the end, he gets murdered like Stephen for preaching and loving people and talking about Jesus at the hands of people who used to be just like him. Okay, pause. What do we do with this? Well, Let's go in a few different directions. Some of you watching online, some of you watching in a service right now, um, you actually are Saul. You're Saul and you can't stand the Christian faith or you really strongly disagree or you don't care. And some of it's by pain. I don't believe God could be like this. If they're loving God, that's you, it's anger. Others of you know you're committed deeply to another religion that goes against what the Christian faith teaches. Some of you are agnostics or atheists, or some of you are like Saul by darkness. You're involved in spiritually dark things and you hate Jesus. Some of you by intellectual belief. It's interesting that Jesus started the conversation with Saul and moved by love to save him so he would become a messenger of life and not death. So the message that our living master has for you that are not Christians yet is this. Every human being is like Saul. We all live our lives thinking we're right, but in this case, we're not. Jesus comes at this moment through his word. He comes all through through friends and other experiences and says, yeah, you're separated from God and you can't get back to him because of sin. And when we realize that Jesus is more than prophet or teacher or leader, but God and has died for our sins and he's the only one who can forgive us. And when we repent and turn our life to him and not us, suddenly everything changes. I mean, Saul prayed and fasted as a sign of regret and asked for mercy. He accepts Jesus as the Son of God, and then these scales fall from his eyes. He sees reality as it truly is. The same for you. Are you willing to meet Jesus and humble yourself? Call out for relationship and mercy, a second chance that offers purpose in this life, eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, and guaranteed resurrection. Be like Saul. Stop fighting heaven. <laughs> Be like Saul. Stop fighting Jesus. Stop relying on your education. Stop relying on your good works. Stop relying on religion. If you're listening to me and you're profoundly religious, that you think that you will prove yourself to God by how faithful and organized you are, you can't buy your forgiveness. All your good works can't cover the amount of sin you've committed, nor mine. Stop trusting in your history. Stop trusting in your rebellion. Stop trusting in your self-sufficiency. Stop trusting in your looks. Stop trusting in your money. Stop trusting in other religiosity or other leaders or spirituality or being kind. Stop trusting in your values. Stop trusting in your political views. Stop trusting in your rights. The only person who can reorient anyone to reality is Jesus. You have to humble yourself and say to him, not by religion, not by rights, not by works, not by money, not by achievement, by Him. What do you do with Jesus? It's a huge question. You should ask it. 
Um, lots of us watching this and listening to this are followers of Jesus. And as we know, we're in a moment where our culture has moved from hostility, from apathy to hostility. And uh, it's really difficult being a Christian and growing by the day. And so there are more and more souls around us. And the question is, how do you love a soul? Well, number one, here's the thing we all need to remember. We all were Saul in God's eyes before too. Only when we actually believe what the Bible says about what we used to be and how much trouble were we really in, then does mercy, grace, and forgiveness make sense and actually open us up to love those that hate us. If you want to know what you were before you were a Christian, whether you met Jesus at 3, 20, or 80, just don't forget what Romans 5, 10 says. For if, well, we were God's enemies, Maybe some of you need to say this out loud as a Christian. I used to be God's enemy because you were, and I was. Well, if we were God's enemies, we reconciled to him through the death of his son, Jesus. How much more being reconciled shall we be saved through his life? The only way that we love Saul's and pray crazy prayers like Stephen is that we realize that we actually were just as evil and bad in God's sight. The second thing has to do also with what Stephen did. We have to pray that they would meet Jesus. I, I want you just to take a moment. I want you to think about the person you can't stand. The person you, if you were honest, don't even want to become a Christian. It could be a people group. It could be a political group. You think about it. And yet, we as Christians are commanded to pray for them to meet Jesus. We, we're actually asked by Jesus to pray that he appears in mercy and to save them. We're called to live an authentic Christian life in front of them. They're watching us more than we think, and we need to be ready to help them and assist them cross the line of faith, even if we can't stand them. What did our Lord teach in Matthew 6? You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Listen, <laughs> over the last 25 years, if you hang out with the global church, I've had the privilege of doing that so many times, the amount of stories I've heard, for example, about Hindus and Muslims coming to faith because Jesus appears in a dream and then sends a Christian to assist is just overwhelming and amazing. But you have to be ready. You know, there's this... Um, our, it's now a historic story, but it's documented. Happened in 1904. Now, these miracles, by the way, these visions have been happening all around the world uh, in the last 20 years by the thousands. But here's one from 1904 that happens in an Indian uh, Hindu context. There was a guy named Sundar Singh who hated Christians. Uh, he was a militant Muslim. Uh, and uh, long period of hostility uh, towards Jesus. And uh, it ended up he burns a Bible. And, uh, and still, while he's doing this, he's praying that he'd know the truth. Now, uh, after the burning Bible incident, Jesus appeared to him. The testimony goes like this. I, uh, then as I prayed, I looked into this light. And I saw the form of the Lord Jesus Christ. It had such an appearance of glory and love. Uh, if, if it had been some Hindu incarnation... I would have prostrated myself before him. But it was the Lord Jesus who I had been insulting just a few days earlier. 
I felt that a vision like this couldn't even come from my own imagination. And I heard a voice saying to me in, in my own language, Hindustani, how, how long will you persecute me? I've come to save you, and you are praying to know the right way. Why do you not take the right way? And the thought came to me, uh, Jesus Christ is not dead but living. It must be he himself. And I fell at his feet and got this wonderful peace. I've never got it anywhere else before. This is this joy I was wishing to get. And when I got it, the vision disappeared. And although the vision disappeared, that peace and joy have remained with me ever since. And this one brother ended up being a very significant leader in the Christian movement. How do we love Saul? We remember we all were Saul. How do we love Saul? We actually pray for those that actually that persecute us. We don't tweet or Instagram against them. We pray for them. Another thing too is, and this is really important, when you're attacked for being a Christian, not for your politics, like I said during COVID, not your view of vaccines, but when you're attacked for genuinely walking as a Christian and obeying the scriptures of, obeying the teachings of scripture, and you feel incredibly isolated and alone and scared and defensive, like Ananias did. Just don't forget that when someone attacks you for being a Christian, they're actually touching Jesus. You're not alone on that social media feed. You're not alone in that room. You're not alone in that family. When they touch you, they touch him. And there are real consequences for that, actually. You're not alone. This last point is probably the most significant for us as Christians. I, I actually feel that uh, the Spirit wants to say this to our church the most. How radical is your gospel? Like, I've been struck how so many Christians in the last four years have seemingly forgotten Grace and forgiveness are real to those we don't like and politically don't agree with, etc. How radical is your gospel? It's like when I said years ago about race, if you, if you can't stand other races, you're going to hate heaven. Well, it's the same thing about everything. Whoever you don't like or whoever you detest or whoever you don't think should get in because of what they have done or not done or how evil they are, how they, you know heaven's going to be full of them, right? Like eternal life is going to be full of sinners who got saved, right? The question is, on this side of eternity, if those people we detest become followers of Jesus, will you do what Ananias did? Are you prepared? How radical is your hospitality? How radical is your gospel? How radical is mine? Ananias, the very first word he used with Saul is brother. Not, I know what you did to me. I know what you did to that person. I've watched the... No. Brother. Not killer of Stephen. Not religious zealot. Not inducer of trauma. Brother. Now, forgiveness is not forgetting, by the way. And it takes time. And we're open about this in this church. But forgiveness is choosing not to hold sin against someone, even though they deserve it. As Jesus forgave us, we must forgive. And in that moment of forgiveness, a new move of God might take root among us. 
I wonder who the Lord is about to call in your circle or in our church community that when they become followers of Jesus, we're not going to be so pleased. And then there's going to be this transformative moment. Why don't we pray for it? Like this. Lord, thanks that Saul became Paul and became one of our greatest leaders and that you used him to introduce us to you. We hold much of Holy Scripture because of him. Thank you. So a few things. There are people among us who don't like you, who hate you, Jesus, don't get you, can't understand you. So here's the, here's the request. Jesus, in a very profound way, in any way you want, show up in their life and undo them so they can be saved. For us, Lord, who are followers of Jesus, help us to pray for our enemies. Uh, help us to know how much we're in trouble. And would you begin to prepare us to say yes to people who cross the line of faith? We would never want to truly do that. Would there be now a multiple moment across our church where there are radical, unexpected conversions to Jesus? And would you bring those people to the people who probably don't want them so they will learn the brother and sister moment? Lord, do this among us so the gospel can see Jesus and his beauty even better. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There you'll find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit that follow button to be notified when another episode releases. We hope you enjoyed what you heard. God bless you.